And so uh, I want us to pray now and ask the Lord's blessing on the time in God's word. Father, we need you. We need your word. Uh, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of your mouth. So right now, let us focus on that and let us learn all that we can today as we focus on this important celebration called Palm Sunday. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen. There's a story told of a little boy who happened to be sick on a Sunday morning, and it just so happened that it was Palm Sunday. And so he stayed home from church and with his mom, and his dad went on to church. And uh, when his dad came home from church, he was holding, you know, those palm branches we, the kids were holding? He came home with one of the palm branches in his hand, you know, for, for his son. And the little boy was curious and said, Dad, why do you have that palm branch in your hand? Uh, and the dad answered and said, well, you see, when Jesus came into, a t- into town, everyone waved palm branches to honor him. And so today at church, we got palm branches. So the kid scratches his head, and he's, then he replied and says, oh, shucks. He said, the one Sunday I miss is the Sunday that Jesus decided to show up. <laughs> How many you know it's good when Jesus shows up to church? That is a good thing, isn't it? And he did today, yeah. This morning, as many of you uh, are well aware, it it is Palm Sunday, or it's the day of the triumphant entry of Jesus into the city of Jerusalem. Uh, This day, taken on the story about it, taken from the Gospels, uh, was where a whole city, and actually regions surrounding Jerusalem, threw a parade for Jesus, who entered the city as king. And as Jesus rode into the city, the people would take palm branches and cloaks, and they would put them in front of him. They were waving the palm branches. They're putting their clothes in front of him in anticipation of his arrival. And that's where we get the word, obviously, for Palm Sunday. This day truly marked a time of celebration where Jesus was being worshipped and praised. But there's something unique about Palm Sunday because it's bittersweet. It's this interesting juxtaposition between praising and rejoicing and saying Hosanna to the son of David, Hosanna to Jesus, and yet realizing that Friday is coming. That only a few days later, the cross was coming. And we know that many in that crowd that were there that day will be only in a few days exchanging their words of praise for the words crucify him crucify him. For that reason, it's bittersweet. Today, I'd like to walk you through the story and look at some important insights from Luke chapter 19, verses 28 through 42. I'm going to read you, this is found in several of the gospels in a little bit different variations, but I'm going to read to you the Luke account in Luke chapter 19, verses 28 through 42, and then we're going to look at some other uh, insights from these verses together. Luke 19, 28 through 42. After telling this story, Jesus went on towards Jerusalem, walking ahead of his disciples. As he came to the towns of Bethphage and Bethany on the Mount of Olives, he sent two disciples ahead, saying, go into that village over there, and as you enter it, you're going to see a young donkey tied there that no one has ever ridden. Untie it, bring it here. If anyone asks, why are you untying that colt? Just say to them, the Lord needs it. 
So they went and they found the colt, just as Jesus had said. Amazing how it just happened to be there. <laughs> just as Jesus had said. And sure enough, as they were untying it, the owners asked them, why are you taking that colt? And the disciples simply replied, the Lord needs it. And so they brought the colt to Jesus, threw their garments over it for him to ride on. And as he rode along, the crowd spread out their garments on the road ahead of him. When he reached the place where the road started down the Mount of Olives, all of his followers began to shout and sing as they walked along, praising God for all the wonderful miracles that they had seen. And they started shouting, Blessings on the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. Another, uh, one of the other gospel accounts uses the word Hosanna, Hosanna to the son of David. <clears throat> but some of the Pharisees among the crowd said, Teacher, rebuke your followers for saying things like that. And he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones along the road are going to burst out into cheers. But as he came closer to Jerusalem and he saw the city ahead of him, he began to weep. All right, here's what I'd like to do. I'd like to begin by talking about four different perspectives that we see represented in this text in this story uh, you may obviously always think about jesus focus on him and you may also uh, think about his own closest disciples but there are actually four different perspectives that we see in this story and this approach will help us to kind of remind ourselves of what's taking place in this important story we're going to see that there's four unique perspectives at this in this event the day that we celebrate today number one is the perspective of Jesus himself, the triumphant, humble king. I just want to mention several things from Jesus' perspective. First of all is the fact that Jesus, what's interesting to me is that he planned this. He planned the details of it with great purpose in mind. Jesus, just to remind you the background before we get to the verses that we begin to read, he had been in Jericho just prior to this. Been in Jericho, and uh, this is where he had the confrontation with Zacchaeus and uh, led Zacchaeus to be a follower. And uh, I'm actually curious whether Zacchaeus may have even been here this day and followed them on into Jerusalem. And then, of course, there was also blind Bartimaeus who had just gotten healed. So now Jesus finds himself at Bethany, and uh, likely, verse 29 tells us that, likely he spent the night there in Bethany, probably with the home of his close friends, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. You remember them, right? And then that's where Jesus uh, directed his disciples. Uh, as Jesus is at Bethphage, which is the adjacent village there to Bethany, Jesus sent two of his disciples over there on a specific mission. And it was a strange one. It was a confusing mission. He instructs them to go and find this donkey. Now, Jesus knew and was planning this whole event, this whole arrival, this whole day, this, this announcement of him as king while coming into Jerusalem was all planned to the very detail. 
Now, Jesus wanted to ride in Jerusalem on a donkey, and I know many of you have probably said, why did he do this? It's an intriguing question that actually is, is in, there's a lot of wonderful insights you can gain from it. Because uh, we see uh, that Jesus was always walking. Do you remember any other time that Jesus was riding? Any other time in the Gospels that we have an account of? He's always walking. He walked up and down the hills. He walked from one side to the other of Palestine. He was always walking. The only other time we remember him taking a ride was on a boat in the Sea of Galilee. Now, all of a sudden, he decides, get me a coat to ride. Isn't that amazing? But it was all with, listen, Jesus never did anything by accident. There's always a purpose involved, right? And so he tells his two disciples, who I'm sure were curious. And don't you know they were scratching their heads? They're like, did, he, am I, did I hear you right? He told us to go over here and to get this, this colt, this young donkey over here for him to ride. Did I get that right? Yeah, yeah, you heard right. Same thing. I don't know why, but let's just do what he said. There's a difference, by the way, between a donkey and a horse. I know that's great revelation to some of you, but there is a difference. And the reason he didn't ride a great steed of a horse into the city was because that's what someone who was um, coming in to pronounce war would have ridden. But someone coming in on a donkey, the way that Jesus came in, was speaking, as Denise mentioned, of the humility, his lowliness. He was coming in as an announcement of peace, not war. And also, there are... You know, obviously, uh, people who with great wealth were those nobility and wealth were those that had horses. Uh, This instead was the king riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, a symbol of peace. Did you notice that it was a certain kind of a donkey? First of all, it was it was a young donkey. It was a foal of of a donkey, and it had never, ever been ridden before. How many of you have ever um, tried riding? an animal that has never been broken before. Uh, I see one hand. Anybody else here? Yes, I know a few of you here are horse people, all right? Uh, Would you say that it's always a calm, easy experience? Uh, No problem. It's always fraught with wild, out of control, right? Isn't it interesting that Jesus chose to ride on an unbroken colt? You ever thought there may be a message there? I think he's trying to send a signal that, frankly, many of those who were going to be in the crowds would never allow him to break their will. They would never be willing to submit and surrender to Jesus and his authority at the end of the day. But yet here, he's specifically asking for a cult that had never been written before to show the submission of this unbroken animal to the master, Jesus to tame this wild animal. But the stubborn hearts of the Jews, that was a different story. Jesus didn't own the donkey. He actually had to borrow it. He had to borrow a donkey. Now, Jesus knew exactly what he's getting ready to face. And as I said, he was planning every detail of this. And what's really important, in addition to what I just mentioned about him riding on the colt, was the fact that this this planned incident was also in exact detail the fulfillment of an Old Testament prophecy. 
I should have put that on the screen so you have it. But you write down in your Bibles or in your notes, Zechariah 9.9. It's an easy one to always remember. Zechariah 9.9. Maybe one of the most specific Messianic prophecies that we have in the Bible. May I read it to you? This is what Zechariah, 500 years before, okay, 500 years before Zechariah the prophet prophesies this. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Of course Jesus was going to do it this way, right? In order to send a sign. And, and most of those, I'm convinced, probably that were in the crowds that had any training in the synagogue, knew that was like, all of a sudden, it's like connecting the dots. Here they see Jesus riding in on this. They're like, wait, 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 wait a minute. Isn't that what Zechariah said? The Messiah, the Messiah was going to come in and we were to rejoice that the arrival of our king. Can't you imagine that there was a lot of ahas going on? among the crowd and by the way and uh, we see that jesus as the people were lining the roads of the city as he was coming down from the mount of olives this was his public declaration this was his uh, announcement formal announcement yes he was the promised king this we should remember was the beginning of a great festival the timing of his arrival was at the beginning of the Passover festival. This was eight days, the most highly celebrated of all Jewish festivals, the Passover. Some of my local Orthodox Jewish friends, man, they told me a couple of weeks ago, just before I left for China, they said, man, getting ready for Passover. Just had Purim, getting ready for Passover. They're all excited about it. Why? Because any Jew, know, any good Jew knows the importance of Passover. What was it celebrating? It was celebrating the deliverance of their ancestors from Egyptian slavery. Jews from all over the world, then and now, but in then in particular, were celebrating Passover for these eight days. And they were all coming in where? To Jerusalem to celebrate. The city was a buzz. The city was full of noise and joy. The city was filled to overflowing. Jesus wasn't the only one arriving in Jerusalem that day. There were a whole lot of other people there. I just want to notice one more thing about Jesus, not only voluntarily surrendering to this acclamation and this adoration of the crowds, which I find very interesting that Jesus never... He never once, riding the donkey in, he, would, he never once said, shh, shh, shh. There were times, and other times in his life when it was the wrong timing, he would actually discourage people from spreading the word. Now it's like, see, God has a timing for everything. Now it's exactly God's timing. Jesus just allowed people to exclaim their praises. But there's one more little incident that I have to share in the very last verse that I read to you. I want you to picture Jesus coming into the city. 
those that were the closest to the donkey, right, at walking close to Jesus as everybody was shouting and celebrating and waving their palm branches and proclaiming him as king and shouting, Hosanna. Maybe the people who were closest to Jesus could see and realize that all of a sudden, Jesus stopped the parade. He stopped for a moment. They probably saw his body begin to shake, tremble. Maybe at first they thought it was laughter, but you know, laughter would seem to be natural for everybody else, but not Jesus. When they looked at his face carefully, they saw absolutely no laughter. Instead, what did they see? Tears. Rather, Jesus had sorrow and tears. He was not laughing. He was crying. Now, I don't know whether that caught your attention, but there's only two places in the Bible that it says Jesus cried. And one was at a time that you wouldn't suspect, would you? So obviously you have the question, why would he cry now? I think it was simply when he was writing, when he was coming into the city and saw the city of Jerusalem and his heart was breaking because he knew that many of the people who were praising him weren't, weren't heartfelt followers. They weren't really committed to it. And he knew the rebellion of the Jewish people had always been paramount. And he knew that what they were wishing for was, a, was an overthrow of the Roman Empire. And he knew that he was coming to actually suffer and to go to the, a week of suffering, as we call it the Passion Week, would end up on a cross. Jesus wept. Now this is one of the perspectives. This is one viewpoint. But there were a few others. Let's look at the, uh, I just uh, put a classical interpretation from a classical artist of Jesus coming into the city. And I also thought it might be interesting for you to kind of get a visual of what, what he was seeing. This is an actual picture that I took at uh, my most recent trip to Israel. This is taken from the Mount of Olives, on the east side of Jerusalem. So he comes literally by the way that it's two miles from Bethany to Jerusalem. Right? So that's how far he and his disciples were, were coming with him sitting on that coat. So they ride in. They're coming in from this east side. You can see the, the temple there in the distance. And from the Mount of Olives, he walks literally, they walk right down this, this path. And I've walked the same exact path. You go right by the brook of Kidron, right in the, in, at the valley point. And uh, I can't help but think that Jesus must have been thinking to himself, the Garden of Gethsemane, it's right there. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to end up there a few days, probably. You know what I'm saying? I mean, just the location, just the geography of what's going on is significant. And so they walk down the hill, walk across the Brook of Kidron, and up to the entrance to the walls of the city of Jerusalem. All right, what's the other perspectives? Well, one is his own disciples. Not only his 12 closest disciples, but the other several hundred disciples that we know were totally devoted followers of Jesus who had not only just seen miracles, but they had become devoted followers, heartfelt, committed followers of Jesus. They not only knew that he was the Messiah, but, but their, their hearts were committed to him. This wasn't just external they weren't just a part of the crowd. They weren't just caught up in the emotion of the moment. There had been a significant heart change. These were the committed, the disciples, committed disciples around Jesus. 
There was a third group with a different perspective, likely, and that would be the crowds. The followers. Those would be just the casual crowds who gathered together in the city. Now, you have to remember, even those who had come into Jerusalem from all over were there uh, fully aware that Jesus, the miracle worker, was coming into the city. They were watching the parade, right? They had heard. They knew that Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. They knew that Jesus had done all these healings, even the most recent ones of blind Bartimaeus. Maybe blind Bartimaeus was walking along with him saying, look. But the crowds of people. How many of you know there's something significant about group psychology? (laughs) You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, kind of crowd thinking, group think. And I think that probably in this day, there was a lot of that going on, that that everybody was just caught up in the emotion of the moment. Uh, I've been before to large uh, Christian gatherings, and many of you maybe have been to a large Christian concert, and everybody's going crazy, like, (sighs) right? Remember the days of the mosh pits and all that stuff? Yeah, yeah. Y'all didn't think I knew about that, did you? Anyway, uh, and everybody's going crazy at these concerts. But a week later, so where, where are you now? Are you really fully engaged now and following after Jesus with your life 24-7? Oh, no, no, man, we're just having fun at the concert. These are people here who are shouting, Hosanna. By the way, it's important just to understand what the word Hosanna means. Yes, it was an expression of praise, but literally it meant save us. That's what the word Hosanna literally meant. Save us. But when people shouted it, they, most of them were likely thinking of what kind of salvation? They were, they were looking for salvation and deliverance from Roman tyranny. They were tired of it. They were expecting the Messiah to come and to get them out of their trouble. Get them out of the tyranny and the junk that they were living in. That's what I think many of them were praising him for. Some, yes, they were praising him because they'd heard about all kind of great miracles that he had done. But listen, Jesus wasn't the kind of king they were thinking and hoping for. In a few days, they'd recognize this. They were wanting the physical king, a Messiah that would use his miracles in a revolt against Rome. Now, they weren't interested in a king who would come to set up his kingdom in their hearts. You see, Jesus had it all planned out. His first coming, this visit to earth, was to come to go to a cross, not wear a crown. This crown would be the crown of thorns. Later, in his next coming, he'll come as a different type of king, won't he? This king was going to die. He, and he came up, yes, he came as king to set up a kingdom, but it was a kingdom of the natures, the inner nature. His second coming, he's coming as king over the nations and will set up his physical kingdom. So there was a lot of different perspectives going on here among this crowd. Let's look at the fourth final perspective, and that is the perspective of the Pharisees. Yep. The story tells us that they were there. They seemed to always be there. The Pharisees and Sadducees, they were the religious leaders of the day. 
And they weren't there in support. I mean, you know, when you go to a basketball game or you go to, you know, your favorite football team and the other team always has a bunch of people there yelling and screaming. Always got an opposing team present. Well, clearly, uh, this was worse than the opposing team's presence at a home game. These Pharisees hated Jesus. They were upset, jealous for the attention, the adoration he was getting, not only before, but even this day, I imagine they were incensed by all this. They didn't know what to do. They, they, how do you deal with the crowds? They hated everything that Jesus stood for. It threatened their power and their position. And then one of them must have come up with an idea, saying, I've got an idea. Let's challenge Jesus. Let's get up close enough where we can challenge him on the, for, on, the matter, uh, on the matter of order. This is out of order. Typical religious point. It's just out of order. People are way too excited about Jesus here. Let's just get things in order. Let's bring him into order, and so we'll confront Jesus. And they did, and then they said, Jesus, why don't you stop these people? And we all remember his comment, right? If they don't praise me, even these rocks and these stones are going to cry out praises. Interesting contrast, isn't there, between all these four different perspectives. As I wrap up, I, do, I just want to touch very briefly on three distinctive differences between these groups. Because I think they basically represent two groups. You have the committed and the casual. The followers and those that were shouting praises and hosanna represent two different groups. Only God really knew their hearts and who was a part of what group. But I think there are three distinctives as we try to apply this message to our lives today. Because the truth of the matter is that there are many Christians today who are just as casual as those from our story. Who might get involved in Seasonal worship. Seasonal expressions. Maybe even wear a cross around their neck. Or what other symbols that they may choose to identify with. But they're not committed. They're people who attend church every Sunday. We're just casual. Pastor... Charles Stanley said that the greatest disease among Christians in America today is casual Christianity. Casual Christianity. I concur. Complacency is the disease of the day. It's the lack of total heartfelt commitment. Would you look at three important contrasts? Number one, remember I'm comparing a committed faith to a casual faith. Number one, a committed faith is, number one, Christ-centered. Not self-centered, Christ-centered. Those that are casual are me-centered. A lot of people today, unfortunately, are just interested in what Jesus can do for me. I think many of the people in the crowd that day were also interested only in, how can you get me out of my mess? How can you relieve the pressure of the Roman rule over my life? Today in America, we tend to say things like this. Hey, God, here's my calendar. Here's my agenda. I'll see if I can squeeze you in here somewhere. Putting God first or turning to God only when it's convenient or selfishly useful. That's not committed. In our passage, we see the reasons why people were there. 
they were all selfish. These same people, remember, these same people who were there for many reasons, a few days, only a few days later, this was a Sunday, only a few days later, what are they shouting? Give us Barabbas. That murder crucified Jesus, the sinless one. I wonder today if our faith, our walk with God is truly a committed faith or is it more self-centered? Jesus did not come to be your Santa Claus. We used to have a saying that said, gimme, 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 my name is Jimmy. Some people treat God the way Jimmy does. God is a God of full of blessings. But he wants your heart and your commitment. Let's look at the second contrasted distinctive. A committed faith is relationship driven. It's not about religion, but it is about relationship. And a lot of people get those things confused. In our own lives today, a committed faith comes only through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. It begins with a personal relationship that comes through accepting Jesus by faith. But it is one also where every day should be fresh and new as he personally directs our steps. I remember hearing my my youngest son Joshua's testimony after he had accepted Jesus as a as a as a boy, as a four-year-old kid. But you know, that was a it was a he understood things as a four-year-old. Later, when he was 16, 17, he made a real serious commitment to Christ after a, a rough struggle. And I remember asking him, said, well, what, tell me, you know, what was going on? He said, Dad, he said, I, you know, you've been pastoring and ministering all my life. He said, I understood going to church, understood the whole formality, I understood the routines. He said, what I didn't understand is the relational part. He said, I didn't get that. I said, I'm thinking, how could you never have gotten that? But you know what I realized? There are a lot of people today that don't get this is about a relationship. Doesn't Jesus writing to the church in Revelation 3.20 say what? Behold, I'm standing at the door. I'm knocking. If anyone will hear me, open the door and hear me, what? Then I'll leave you alone. You can do your own thing. No, I will come in and the object is what? We're going to sit down. We're going to have fellowship. God's objective in your life and mine is what? Intimate fellowship. He's not here to bring you religion. He's not here to bring you something that's, that's, that's just, you know, some false one day a year shout Hosanna. He wants personal intimacy with us. Number three. A committed faith is not based on circumstances. It's not, it's not dependent upon your what's troubles that are going on in your life. Frankly, at the parade that we read about here today, it was trendy to offer praise. It was the end thing to cheer for Jesus. This year it's this, next year it'll be someone else. Everyone was doing it. But at the trial of Jesus... No longer was it trendy. Now it was risky. 
possibly even life-threatening. I just came back from a country in which people take risks to follow Jesus, much less lead a group of Christians. I oftentimes, whenever I am exposed and reminded of those who live in persecuted places around the world, I think, what would severe persecution do to our country and to our churches? I hope to God it wouldn't thin down the crowds to a few. Because what it would do is separate the casual from the committed. No, the Bible tells us in all circumstances that we are to what? Rejoice. It said when you come and face different kinds of adversities and difficulties and trouble, what are you to do? Rejoice. Count it all joy. That's not easy to do. But a true committed faith isn't moved by how good things are going in your week. How smooth everything's going. Listen, there's stuff that goes on every day. <clears throat> it's life. Wake up. It's life. The question is not whether or not you're going to have stuff going on. The question is, are you going to be committed? Your faith going to be constant and persevering? Or are you going to waver and be wishy-washy? As I close today, I want to ask you, are you casual or are you committed? Are you just a part of the trendy crowd? Or your heart's truly been changed? You say, man, I'm... I'm 110% wanting to follow after Jesus. I'm going to ask that you would stand, our prayer teams to come forward, please. As we close our service, I do want to pray for you, and then Denise is going to release you. But this is a great opportunity for you to maybe, maybe you need to make a recommitment of your life to Jesus today. Maybe you're here today and you say, I have religion but not relationship. This is a great opportunity for you to come and to have someone pray for you and agree with you, whatever your need may be. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is the humble king, but he is king. Today we celebrate his kingship, his lordship. But let's take it personally as well. Amen? Lord, I pray for every person that is here today. I pray that you would make this message real to our hearts. That we don't just get caught up in the moment and the, the emotion of the, of the Hosanna, Hosanna. But when we say God save us, we understand that it means releasing and delivering us from sin and unforgiveness, and pride, lust, addictions. God save us. And Lord, we thank you for being our Savior and our King. Lord, we pray the Holy Spirit would make these words deeply relevant to each of us. In Jesus' name, Denise. Let's uh, receive a blessing from the Lord today. May you be blessed with passion for the Lord this week. May you be blessed with a bold heart that seizes every opportunity in front of you. May you be blessed with a heart that sees the needs of those around you, and the courage to speak Jesus to them. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord, the Lord turn his face toward you.
and give you peace. In Jesus' name, God bless you all. Blessings on your week.